So good evening, Taoiseach, and good evening to, to everyone here. Uh, it's very important and I think appropriate that the European movement celebrates and recalls Ireland's 50 years of membership because it really did play an absolutely central role in motivating and mobilising uh, civil society in Ireland in terms of EU membership and also our participation uh, thereafter. And that role is still important today because, as I'm sure we will discuss with Antishuk, with that membership is never finished. It's always changing, evolving, because both Ireland changes, but also, of course, the EU. But we should remember and start from the base that Ireland made a decisive decision and choice for Europe. 83% of the electorate voted back then, so it was a decisive choice. And Taoiseach, I want to bring you back to 1972. And it was your fellow Corkman, Jack Lynch, and we should also say Paddy Hillary, who signed the tre Treaty of Accession. And that evening in Brussels in January 1972, Brussels experienced its first Irish party. Jack Lynch gave a wonderful rendition of the banks, and Brussels at the time was not used to prime ministers singing. So it started a tradition. I suspect in Brussels they're still not used to prime ministers singing. But your fellow Corkman uh, really livened up the Brussels, uh, the Brussels evening. And of course, a very high bar was set for Ireland's membership. We had to throw very good parties. But of course, if we think back to 1972, Ireland really was a very different place. I was in my leaving cert in St. John Bosco's in Carsevine, that southwest tip of the country. And Ireland was the first wholly poor country to join the EU. Our per capita incomes were only 64%. And the CSO, I just checked some figures today, life expectancy for men in Ireland in 1972 was under 70 and for women 73. And so, but there was also that sense of excitement following the referendum, that this was a project for Ireland's future and that future would be better. And so Taoiseach, I think back to 1972, to what the expectations of membership were, what it meant for this small island, uh, this small country back then. I was 12 years of age back then. Uh, <laughs> I was slightly older. <laughs> so I, I'm not saying I had a kind of clairvoyant, you know, futuristic kind of view. Um, and um, Jack Lynch would have sang the banks the following year as well, because Cork won the All-Ireland Football <laughs> for the first time since 1945. And he would have been on that team in 1945. <laughs> and that's why he won six in a row. Uh, he won, all the rest were hurling in between 45. I say that because in a way, there was a lot of trust party loyalties and certainties were much stronger then. I'm just reflecting back and suspect that um, a lot of people trusted, you know, what the government was saying or the Fianna Fáil party or the Fine Gael party or, you know, up to then maybe 40, 40 odd percent had a stable allegiance. We had a two and a half party system, more or less. We weren't, it wasn't as fragmented as maybe the political science said it should have been because of PR and all of that. And uh, so, there was an element of trust, an element of hope um, that this was a turning point in terms of, 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 of Ireland's future. Also probably a sense that we would get something from Europe, which if we're honest about it, has, had been a feature of our membership for maybe the 20 or 30 years, the first 20 or 30 years, you know, cohesion funds, structured funds, all of that. Um, but if you think about it, Sean Lamas was preparing for this 
prior to that, he was. I, I saw a speech he gave where he spoke about we have to get fit for the common market and trying to reduce mm. tariffs uh, mm. on certain home industries that, you know, mm. there would be some degree of, um, of, 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 of pressure or turbulence um, as there was. So my parents, I, I can remember them being very supportive and pro this. Uh, now, my father would have been a personal friend of Jack Lynch, they played football together and all of that. And whether that was a factor or whether they uh, were urban workers, uh, they saw positives in this. Interestingly, my late mother-in-law, uh, they were drapers. And uh, I remember talking to her much, much later on. Um, and she kind of had reservations at the time, uh, being drapers, and probably that whole question of free you know, movement of goods and all of that and how it would affect. So you had a lot of those concerns um, as well. And I do recall the debate around that. And if you think about it, the first decade after we joined was turbulent enough as well. And yes. a lot of the traditional industries did hit, you know, yep. uh, you know, manufacturing, car manufacturing in the 80s and so on, and Cork, Ford, Dunlops. So there was a lot of, uh, it wasn't all plain sailing either. No. Yeah, yeah. No. You know. uh, and... Uh, You've obviously been very engaged and involved in Ireland's membership of the EU. And you said in your speech to the Global Ireland Forum this year that it's very important to be in the room when negotiations take place. And of course, you've been, throughout your career, you have been, you're Minister for Education, Health, Enterprise, Trade and Employment and Foreign Affairs. And I hope I haven't left anyone. I hope I haven't left anyone out. And then since June 2020, you've been part of that very exclusive club, the European Council. So it would be great to get a flavour from you of what it's like to have that seat at the table and how small states can work it and what the milestones were for this mm -hmm. country that, that you've observed firsthand. Actually, I, I would have been at the council pre-Lisbon as foreign minister, which is kind of interesting. Of course. You, the difference since coming back onto the council, I, I get the sense that um, there is, uh, I suppose, more balance between uh, the, the commission and the council. So a lot gets argued out um, at the meetings by the politicians as well. And I think President von der Leyen is a strong commission president uh, and has grown stronger. And I think COVID has been a turning point in terms of this idea of Europe working collectively mm. to pre-purchase vaccines, for example, sure. to look at the whole manufacturing supply chain with a view to saying we need to do better to make sure we have uh, total self-reliance in terms of not just procurement, but manufacturing, delivery of all the component parts of vaccines. It was a fairly significant project because when I was Minister for Health, there was no real uh, harmonization and still to a certain extent in terms of competency there isn't in terms of public health mm. because most ministers of health or departments of health domestically mm. jealously guard their domain and I remember like being a minister for health and officials in the department of health saying all hell will break the floods will break you know if we were going to allow cross-border services or that we never fund this we couldn't it'll be disastrous you had almost images of hordes of Irish people going abroad to get operations you know okay. and it doesn't happen the world doesn't collapse <laughs> but that was the view in health so I'm just but on the council the, the that that fundamental thing of seeking consensus is still there mm. it's very interesting it means long meetings 27 member states. It means most meetings are two or three in the morning now, if it's a good day. Uh, some of them <laughs> went longer. Um, but there is that sense of trying to seek a consensus all of the time, trying to understand 
the difficulties that a particular member state may be in mm -hmm. and working to see can that be resolved. Mm. Um, and, and to be fair, I, I think the, the German chancellor, uh, the French president, play key roles behind the scenes with the commission and Charles Michel, of course, as chairman mm. of the council to try and navigate mm. the journey to a consensus on a whole range of issues. Mm. Uh, I think the, the, the main one at the moment being energy. Of course, um, and very tough. And Ukraine and all of that. Yep. Um, and um, I, I suspect the next number of weeks will be, you know, in terms of the, the energy sanctions, oil and all of that. But that is still there. And John Hume often spoke about that and trying to apply that to Ireland in the context of the peace process. You know, the European politics is more consensus-based mm. as opposed to majoritarian, that we have to get a decision and let's ram it through. Yep. And there are lessons in that. It's a bit slower maybe, but you do get better, I think, delivery in, in the end. And can I ask you how, because 27 states, and a lot of them are small states, and as we know, small state interests can be just as neuralgic as large state interests. How has that consensus arrived at? How has it worked? Does it rely in the end on what happens in the room and then all the bilaterals that take place? Or can, does something have to be reasonably pre-cooked before it comes to the top table? Well, it has to be reasonably pre-cooked, although laterally, you know, in the last I would, 12 months, a lot is left to the council now, which is not ideal, mm -hmm. okay? Um, a lot can get left to the council, which probably leads to the late nights and, and, and so on like that, um, and, and early mornings. Um, maybe it's a function of the 27. Newer alliances are developing. We're part of the Nordic Baltic Alliance now as well. Mm -hmm. We go to their meetings. Um, and um, uh, the, the, one of the, I mean, I became a member on that very first day with this idea of collective um, you know, revenue raising in terms of COVID, of and it was a major sort of breakthrough. Now, even though we were um, no net contributors uh, mm -hmm. for the first time, we still argued on the side of um, doing, doing a big global, or sorry, a big collective arrangement, whereas the frugal four yes. net contributors were saying, um, or opposed to this and trying to reduce its scale mm. uh, in terms of the bazooka and so on like that. And I thought Ireland, if I'm just saying we did well, we said, look, we're putting the European entity first. Mm. Uh, we could save ourselves a lot of money if we just wanted to do, you know, be, be miserly about it. Mm. Uh, but we felt COVID required at the time a big bang approach in terms of borrowing collectively and in terms of grant aiding countries that needed it on the basis that we're exporting 90% of what we produce a, a lot to Europe and we will gain if Europe uh, can survive this at the time. And can I ask you about that? So we were seen at the time as part of the Hansa Group or whatever it's now called. Obviously, it extends into the Baltics now. But of course, particularly the Netherlands was the leader of the Frugal Four. Yeah, and, uh, was that a difficult decision in, in Irish government to go with the collective borrowing or was it was it seen as really something that would mark us out from, and we wouldn't be part of a club we didn't want to be part of on this issue? Yeah. Well, I was kind of had nailed my colours to the mast in opposition to this. If you look at some of my statements to the Doyle post-European meetings, we were saying, because of the aftermath of the Great Crash, we felt Europe didn't respond collectively on that occasion. And we had been arguing consistently since then that we need a stronger fiscal union. Um, yes. And we needed strong banking union. So therefore, we saw this as an opportunity to say, OK, let's now mm. grab and seize the opportunity. It's the right thing to do. 
we felt at the time. Um, so I didn't have a difficulty, and we didn't have a, as a, three parties in government either. Um, three members of three parties were quite comfortable with that with that mm. position. And um, if I recall, Ireland signed that letter of the nine, which marked us out. So yeah. in other words, I think that letter was really important because it wasn't just yes. the Mediterranean states. So it, it really shook the alliances a bit. What well, did, yeah. And, and I'm also a member of the Aldi group. So of I'm course. in there with, with Mark and Rutland and so on like that. <laughs> exactly. You know? And um, so uh, you, you have all that. But I think, I mean, there were, there were challenges at that. That was a, that was a it was long and tough meeting. Uh, I think it was the second longest European Council yeah. in the history of the Council. Well, there you are. <laughs> uh, and it was a difficult, I mean, it was a major decision too, to be fair to the Dutch, to be fair to all the others. Absolutely. You know? um, it wasn't a simple decision. Uh, and then you had rule of law mixed up in, in that as well. It was a factor in this, to be fair. Um, and that got very, very tricky um, in terms of provisions that were being asked for uh, in, and mm. even it's still being played out right now in terms exactly. of release of funds because of rule yeah. of law issues in Hungary and, 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 and Poland. Poland yeah, but mostly, yeah. 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 And can I ask you how important are personal relations in that, at that top table? They're very that, important. How are they cultivated? Does chemistry matter? Chemistry matters. You have to make an effort. You, you, you do have to go and say, hello, I am so-and-so. I'm -so. <laughs> Mark Lang from Ireland, how are you? Uh, and so on like that. And, um, and I would, I've built up good relationships with... with um, and, um, and you learn a lot, you know. Uh, it's very funny when President Biden addressed the council recently, um, uh, the, um, the Kyrianis, I think, the, um, the, uh, the, the Latvian uh, the prime minister um, was born in the same... Uh, town is Biden, you know, uh, and, and, and Biden comes down to me and says, he talks as an Irishman, and then he says, um, uh, where, where's Biden again? He's in the, he just points to your man and says, you know, he's born in my hometown. I said, there must be something in the water, you know. You you get the kind of, you have to work at relationships, and, um, and it works well, and I think most prime ministers and presidents or whatever titles they have are very open to that. It's very, very pragmatic. They're all politicians around the room. Yeah. Politicians understand that everybody has challenges. Everybody has a base. Everybody has uh, domestic issues politically. Mm. Um, so Spanish mm. Prime Minister recently had real issues around the energy market. And he did, uh, you know, called us all, did VCs with all of us. Mm. Um, I, I had got COVID in Washington at the time, so I had to do it from Washington. <laughs> okay. uh, on, on, you know, on initiatives, he was going to take at a subsequent council meeting because he wants to mm. separate gas out from the price uh, because mm. they're more renewable, and yet they feel they, they're getting a, a raw deal in terms of how that's operating, and he's under a lot of domestic pressure. So politicians understand that, and they seek to try and to get a decision that mm. respects the position that somebody else is in. Uh, without landing them in a, in, in, in a very unsustainable position. And the EU is often portrayed as a very technocratic entity, but in reality, it's very political. It's very political. Uh, and it's very, I find this post-Lisbon, I find it almost more political in that sense. Um, okay. Maybe because of the changes in Lisbon. It's, it's and, and so you see a major difference in how the EU system operates pre-Lisbon and post-Lisbon. I, I mean, you were foreign minister, yeah. obviously, in Lisbon. What do you say, major? But there are differences, and you can, they're, they're, they can be felt and, and seen, you know? Mm. Um, and even in terms of sanctions or, or in terms of the 
Ukraine perspective now, you know, in Versailles, there would have been a lot of um, mm. people coming out away from the table to have a powwow mm. uh, in terms of language that we would formulate. Um, and, and because we're English speaking now, we get asked every now and again, can you think of a word that might solve this? Yes. <laughs> That's a good... Uh, it was three o'clock one morning. I just said, that word does not mean that. <laughs> okay. And it's okay, okay, we give up. We live and accept it. I, I, <laughs> I wanted to get to bed earlier. <laughs> when, when, you, when you said, you know, it's a very consen consensus-oriented system and, and, and a very political, but also every word matters in a European Council conclusion. Well, every word matters, and that's why we're more flexible in our use of language, mm. I feel, and we can make a contribution that way too. I, I, mm. And um, so, and that's what I said earlier that I would prefer more pre cooking. Okay. Genuinely, and Cordoper should be doing that. Yeah. And is, but increasingly of late, um, there is substantial redrafting of conclusions at council meetings. Yeah. And, uh, that gets very, very tricky. It can um, do. Um, and yeah. um, that probably reflects the difficulty of the issues. Of course. And also uh, some countries are in a different space uh, in, in respect of um, the rule of law. And so you get a bit of politics going on there as well. Of course. People take political stances and, and so on. Uh, if we could zoom out from the institutional, the political, to, to uh, the impact of EU membership on Irish society. And of course, there's been a huge transformation of our society. But how important for you was the EU equality agenda, the non-discrimination agenda? How important was it in terms of the way our society evolved? I think it was fundamental. Uh, I mean, I say to people that it was, uh, joining the European Union was the most transformative event in the history of Ireland, modern Ireland since independence. No question about that. No question. I think on equality, uh, it was the, not just a catalyst. It was a very, it was the, it proactively forced us or encouraged us, put it whatever way you want, to move on, on, on the on equality issues in the workplace, everywhere, on environmental law. Yes. I think it dragged us kicking and screaming in terms of um, mm. environmental uh, protection, law. Um, we were too complacent about all of that before we joined the European Union. Uh, and so on, on many, many issues, uh, I think it had a very positive impact. Uh, equality, environment, I would single out, mobility, multiculturalism. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, when you, when you talk to many uh, companies not in invest in Ireland, um, mm. and... Um, just with one with Jamie Dimon on Monday, met, uh, they've just bought uh, Global Shares in Clannacilty. Uh, a very interesting example of a successful Irish company bought out. Um, but they're amazed now at what they see as a multicultural Ireland. Uh, every company has, like the United Nations in terms of so many different countries with uh, citizens here now working. And they were saying, what happened? And he asked me the question, he's just looking at Ireland in the last 25 years, and he says, it's not comparable to what it was. Yep. You know, they had a vision of Ireland with the North, uh, violence, the whole lot. Um, and now it's, it's a place where talent will come to, which is key now to companies mm. and investment companies are looking for places where they can be certain or at least have security around access to talent, being a member of the European Union. Mm. And, the, and, and free movement of people gives us uh, a head start now on that, uh, as well as our, our facilitation of non-EA uh, uh, citizens to come into to, to Ireland to work as well. And that's proving a very effective tool 
in terms of winning forward or foreign direct investment. But it's interesting, their observations of Ireland and how it has changed. Mm -hmm. And I often think that back in the early in the 2000s when the 10 states joined, um, when we opened up, we took a decision just to have no uh, obstacles or barriers to uh, the citizens of those states to come in here to work, that that kind of almost accelerated Mm. Um, Europeans coming to work in Ireland um, yep. to, 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 compared to what we had experienced previous yep. to that. Uh, and when I reflect on that, I think it's been all progress since then. And touch wood, you know, we haven't had a far right reaction against no. this. Uh, we have to work at it. We have to make sure we, we don't. And we can do things better. But um, I think Irish people have integrated well and are working generally well with, with this. Mm. And of course, the how important, so our neighbouring island has turned its back on free movement. Do you think free movement is just that essential pillar of the EU? Absolutely. Yeah. Without which the rest... Well, what I found blue. interesting, our young people, I think is it, um, I don't know how many, out of 50,000 Irish have of Erasmus, yes. um, and I think 100,000 have come into Ireland, young people. So does, I mean, we should be doing more there with young people. Mobility is great now. And I, we discovered this during COVID, actually. You know the, the big argument during COVID, let's seal off the island. Yes. Like it wasn't sealable. <laughs> yeah. um, it was actually a welcome sort of revelation through it, or epiphany through the whole thing. We are now so um, interwoven, seamlessly part of the European continent, you can seal it off. And not just Britain and Ireland, but actually European Union. There was people ringing up saying, hey, I'm going to get my daughter. My daughter's in Belgium. My daughter's here. My son is there. Um, and a lot of that happened. I'm not complaining during COVID, you know, people wanted this, that. But it just all was revealed, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wake up. We are uh, part and parcel of Europe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. if you think back to that Ireland in 1972, we were still a country of emigration and we had heavy emigration yeah. in the 1970s. And now we're a country of immigration. So it ha that's hugely transformative. I think that will, that's, that will be the big challenge in the future. I mean, as I've said, it's been great and we've done it. We've got to release that. That will be the future. I think migratory flows will continue. Mm. That's the way of the world. Uh, I think we have moved very well in the context of, of, of membership of the European Union. And I think it has enabled us to cope with this and, not, and do it proactively and well. Um, but I think we also, from an education perspective, have to understand what's going on with climate change, conflict all over the world. Of course. That these migratory flows are going to continue, so it's part and parcel. So the issue really isn't to complain about it. The issue is how do you proactively engage and manage, and manage it. it, I would have think, I thought, think, yeah. would think. Yeah. yeah. And obviously the impact of EU membership was transformative of the Irish economy. Patterns of trade, globalisation, dependency on the UK was dramatically uh, altered. And how important was the Single European Act and the Single Market Initiative in the 80s to that ratcheting up of foreign direct investment in Ireland and that launch pad to the, to well, the European I mean, market? It was hugely important. You know. By the way, I just want to mention the social fund and all of that. Yes. I think of the regional technical colleges, which are now technological universities, and the investment, I think Ireland did very well in applying a lot of the European Social Fund to human capital. Yes. And that was a great decision, and we, we, we are strong in terms of human capital and developing that on a continuous basis. And the Horizon programme now, I think, is the most exciting programme that we, has been started over the last, I suppose, 20 years now, and that will have to grow and develop. Maury Gagan Quinn, I think, did good work when she was she commissioner and responsible for that. On the single market, um, we keep, I mean, I, I was with the Welsh First Minister recently, and he said to me, he doesn't understand any country that would put barriers up to access to 
450 or 500 million, he was talking about the UK, but he was just literally asking that basic question, why would you put barriers to such a market? For Ireland, it's huge thing for us to be able to say to companies, you have access uh, to, 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 the, to the single market in, in Ireland. They know that. And, and, uh, and there was a lot of scare. I remember at the time I was on a city council, a lot of scaremongering around it and so on like that. A lot of fears were raised, which did not materialise. It's a bit like the, the free, free trade agreements now that are being criticised a lot. And I worry about that because I think Ireland is a country that depends on free trade, um, free mobility of people, single markets, multilateral rules based. That's where we are in terms of our future. And yet we get a very kind of contentious argument around deals that yeah. the European it, Union now do that are very beneficial to us. I mean, the Canadian CETA deal, up 30% for SMEs. And there's all sorts of political wrangling and arguments, argumentation about it. And I'm saying it's almost as if we disconnect in sometimes political discussions, disconnect with the bread and butter of our economy yep. and what makes us tick. And we need to join the dots a bit more in, in respect of what the national agenda should be in terms of being supportive of European Union um, trade agreements mm. that are beneficial to an exporting small open economy like our own. And uh, can I ask you, in, in, in terms of that Ireland and that future, are we, are we ready for the, the level and intensity of technological change we're wit witnessing? I think we are. We will be. Um, <laughs> I, I think we are. I, I, there are some areas of our economy or public services that need to improve fairly dramatically. The health service is one. Um, but we know that, and, we, and I think the COVID again taught us that we, ha and we had to move very fast technologically on the, on, on the vaccine from scratch, and companies were brought in and to help and to assist in relation to that. Um, but I, I, be, I believe we are. Uh, I think we're, we're five or in terms of adoption of technology in the EU league table. Okay. Interestingly, on life expectancy, I saw Eurostat last week had us number one in the European Union in life yeah, yeah. expectancy, and you said where we were in 1972. Now, I did a double take myself when I saw that. Yeah. We were 16 in 2000. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's augurs well, and it shows what can happen. Um, and um, I, I do get the sense that Europe has been very helpful in all of that. And it, it, just an area, a very technical area like data protection, the EU, it's obviously yeah. very big and we have the Digital Services Directive now. And does the EU balance appropriately personal privacy and the need of a society for security? And then also we're required as a country to supervise the big techs because the single supervisory. And are we, are we geared up to, to that? We've, sorry, on that we have more to do. Uh, but the legislation is going through the Oireachtas at the moment. We're going to need a massively resourced commission, um, which will deal with online safety, but also will deal with future media generally, including social media, all media. Um, and um, so there's a number of strands to that at the moment, but we're under no illusion that in terms of manpower, we're talking hundreds and hundreds would have to be employed in the new commission. Uh, that will oversee all of that. Now, in terms of data protection and, and the work that Helen Dixon is doing, I think we have to be careful about some of the criticism too, because some of that criticism can be self-interested. Of course. And you get an envious look at Ireland from time to time. So we need to be our eyes wide open. As mm. It was a bit like the tax thing for a long time. Um, yet Ireland was able to 
facilitate you know, a landing zone in terms of the OECD initiative. Um, we can't be blind to what people are concerned about in terms of whether Ireland has the capacity or not to regulate. On the other hand, I think we have a, uh, I think Helen Dixon and her team have done um, a very good and commendable job in relation to that. Um, and um, we're going to continue to resource that side of it. But there's another side of it, as I mentioned earlier, the Future Media Commission, all of that, yep. which, will, which, which a lot of work and uh, backup is required there as well. And moving on to the political d dimension of membership, do you think the Irish electorate is sufficiently educated and has deep enough knowledge of the EU to be match fit for whatever might happen in the future in terms of referendums? I think we have instincts about the European Union. You know, we have kind of a sense of the European Union. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, I, I was, I became foreign minister the day or the week we lost Lisbon yeah. one. I'll always remember it. <laughs> and uh, my first Foreign Affairs Council meeting. <laughs> was uh, and Bobby... Um, Bobby McDonough. Bobby McDonough is the ambassador, our uh, permanent rep. And uh, I think it's a Hungarian presidency. And I go over and he, he, this guy has the communicate ready, which is going to lambast Ireland and say, you're very naughty, you're terrible people to have had a referendum and voted the wrong way, kind of thing. You know? And I remember Bobby saying to him, like, you cannot issue that, you know. <laughs> so, so, so we kind of told him he couldn't issue that, and we went away and drafted uh, our own uh, communique. And I always remember it, to be fair, I think Carl Bildt from, was there, and uh, David Miliband, um, President Steinmeier, as he was then flew in, had made some negative comments abroad about the Irish decision. I got to see him before the council meeting and said, this is how this is going to work out. This is what you've got to do here. Mm. Because it's important, the most fundamental thing you do in any referendum is you, you respect the decision of the people. But to cut to your point, and we did get a good outcome of that meeting, and then we started saying, okay, we need to provide information to citizens in the first instance as a wake-up call. And I think we are, in Ireland, we have more to do, we can be far more proactive, and I had the discussion already with the European movement in terms of continuing the information education agenda. Um, we tend to switch on, switch off as a public, Mm. Uh, the crisis motivates us. I think Ukraine is interesting, sorry, it's a shocking war, but I think it is motivating people towards mm -hmm. the European Union, is my point. I think I, I sense this, that people are saying, no, this matters again, and we're in the right place, being a member of the European Union. Um, and I think people, and what I've struck, what, what we don't communicate well enough, like throughout COVID-19, European Union was the leading block in terms of... Uh, donating vaccines, uh, sharing of vaccines. I mean, it was way ahead of anybody else by a country mile in terms of manufacturing and global supply of vaccines. And getting no, actually getting the opposite, like getting criticized in our own parliament, people say, oh, you're, and then the, the, the waiver idea came up as if that was a simple thing. If you just pass this in the WTO, everybody would get a vaccine, which is not the case. And it then the commission was very proactive and said, okay, let's now get technology know-how into Africa. Let's give Africa the capacity to manufacture, but have the, tech, the, the technological know-how in, in terms of how you manufacture an mRNA yep. um, technology, and not just for vaccines, but for other medicines into the future. And over a billion has been allocated, and the Belgium government is involved in that, um, uh, and others. And uh, that's, I, I mean, I, I stand back and say, Europe isn't selling that story, yep. you know? Uh, I mean, Russia was sending... Uh, 
minor batches of vaccines into Serbia for geopolitical reasons and into Hungary um, and so on, uh, just to sow discord. Um, whereas Europe did a very effective job, um, in, in, and that caused its own ripples here with the protocol. You know, UK weren't sending any vaccines anywhere no. for, for the first year, yeah. uh, and thankfully we Europe avoided and nearly engaged in export controls. But we managed, and we, we ourselves, the Belgians and others, were saying you cannot impose export controls on vaccines. You can't upset the supply chain. I think given our pharmaceutical experience, we would have had ready access, we understood that, mm. that you try and export, you know, put an export control over here and you might be stopped getting something over there. You know. So uh, moving on to Ukraine, because obviously it's a transformative moment for Europe. Its war is back on our continent and a European country has been invaded and it's a brutal war. And do you think the EU is doing enough? Uh, what more does it need to do? And is there any sense of what the strategic interest of the EU is in the outcome of what's happening? Well, first of all, from a humanitarian perspective, um, it's a horrible, immoral, brutal war, which is um, completely uh, beyond comprehension in terms of there is no, no justifiable reason for it. And uh, people are being killed, uh, families are being destroyed and uprooted. You have, I think, in a, I think one of the highest humanitarian uh, disasters on record since World War II on the continent of Europe. It, it, so it is a, a transformative moment uh, for Europe. I think European, uh, the Council has moved fast on the sanctions, the very first set of sanctions. In fact, what was interesting, some prime ministers said, we thought this meeting would be an attempt to roll back on some of the sanctions, which normally happened in terms of other conflicts. You know, that's going to affect our country more than we can cope. Actually, uh, heads of state wanted more sanctions, not less, on that Thursday meeting. Um, and so SWIFT got expanded a bit, and Lavrov and Putin were put on the list and all of that. Um, so it has moved quickly. But the problem and challenge always is that the rational actors can only go so far. What I mean by that is the rational actors like the US, Europe, uh, UK are saying, we don't want to create a, a nuclear configuration. We want to uh, try and be rational here, uh, bring this war to an end um, through san economic sanctions and, uh, and through as much diplomatic mm -hmm. and political pressure, conscious that what we believe, uh, you know, decisions have been taken so far in respect of prosecuting this war are irrational. Uh, so one has to balance the, uh, how far one goes uh, in terms of trying to stop the war. And that is the challenge, I think, in, yeah. in a nutshell facing European leadership. Um, but I think it will force and is forcing a rethink on European security, vulnerabilities. It has forced Europe, when I say forced, probably the wrong word, it has accelerated a very strong reuniting of the, the uh, transatlantic alliance. And uh, US and Europe are very close on this. The only other issue you can see where there is closest climate change, by the way, which is also very welcome. But on this issue, uh, Europe and, and US are working well, and the United Kingdom also. Um, which is good. I would like to see if the United Kingdom could see this moment and say this is where we should be at. Mm. A much con more constructive relationship with the European Union on the big issues that matter and, and resolve issues to do with protocols and so on. Not allow them to sour the relationship. So um, I think Europe is doing everything it can um, it, and we will continue. To, I, I, I'm positive about how Europe has responded um, notwithstanding mm. the difficulties and I think 
the issues for us and for others will be to reflect on what this means in terms of European security into the future because it does expose vulnerabilities at the heart of the European Union because we're never certain what will happen in the US either. Yep. If you look at a 10-year or 15-year time frame yep. or less. Could you, is it a spur for us to start taking security capability more seriously in Ireland? Because we, I mean, on our defence expenditure is extraordinarily low in comparative terms. And I think most Irish people have a very benign view of the world and don't think trouble will hit us here. But obviously with hybrid threats, cyber and all of that, uh, Ireland now needs to look very carefully at what all of this means for our uh, for our security. I think that's a fair point. And prior to the outbreak of the war, we had the Commission on Defence, which recommended different levels of uh, increased spending, but all of it was significant increased spending on our defence capability. And it did sort of compare this with different groups of states as to where that should land. And there's work on the way at the moment within by the Minister of Defence, within the Department of Defence, and obviously there'll be briefings with the three party leaders, with a view now to preparing estimates for, for the budget, but also with a view to how, over a particular time frame, do we significantly increase defence spending, particularly in terms of air and sea, uh, radar and so on like that. We're not well equipped. Yeah. We had a benign view of the world. No one's going to attack us. We're nice people, um, sort of view, which, which kind of sums it up. Uh, and, sure, we're, we're, and in fairness, we're very good. Like Our strengths have been in peacekeeping, um, nuclear non-proliferation, politically we've been strong in that, uh, which is important. Um, but the hybrid threat, threat is a real threat, uh, as we know. Uh, yep. I mean, the Ukrainian Prime Minister is very clear this war has been waged. First of all, the Ukrainian people have been attacked and killed. Towns have been levelled. Uh, migration has been deliberately uh, created as a, as a pressure zone onto Europe through the levelling of towns and terror and so on like that. Energy crisis is being created um, as well. Um, and um, so these are all instruments. The cybersecurity, it's interesting, Ukrainians have stood up to that. And when I was in Estonia recently, they have a fantastic centre there, Absolutely. which is a NATO centre. We're, no, we, we're out there now. We remember Good. Defence Forces was there when I arrived. Uh, and we have a lot to learn because you cannot do cybersecurity on your own. No. And when we were attacked last year through the health service, uh, there was immediate collegiality. The Polish government had experienced something similar and they contacted us immediately uh, to give us a briefing and, and help, as did the UK government and other governments in Europe. Um, so cybersecurity is probably, the, and when you go to that centre and they simulate all the potential attacks, no one has to land in Ireland to take down no, your no. water system, to take down your health system, to take down whatever. That's a big threat. Um, and um, so I think we have to, and that's why I've suggested others might come up with different ideas, uh, at a minimum a citizen's assembly to just have an informed mm. uh, presentations around neutrality, reflection on it, uh, and, and, and security mm. in, in, yep. in particular. And let's have an open discussion, mm. because there's a lot of positives in our neutrality as well sure. uh, that we should articulate and assert. But equally, Europe is, the world is changing. And of course... And there's a lot of bad actors out there, you know? Uh, um, under, under the Lisbon Treaty, Article 42.7 does commit us to showing solidarity. Mind you, it does also, it does, yeah, it yeah. Does also say uh, that uh, it doesn't affect... It's interesting when I was in... I did Finland and Estonia in the one day, and um, it was very interesting. Finland, which has, uh, has navigated 
a relationship with, with Russian Federation and, and the Soviet Union before yeah. that for a long, long time. What they were saying is basically everything has changed. Yeah. Everything has changed. And they said, I think the Prime Minister said to me, everything we were taught in school could happen, or you know, the, this potentially could happen, has happened, yes. as far as they are concerned. Um, and it's as fundamental as that in terms of their psyche. You know. And I think what's important for us as a people is that we can't afford to think that we're, as an island, I mean, we're geographically, it's more benign, of course, Yeah, yeah. But, but we can't afford to be free riders and we can't afford to take for granted what others do. But I, that is a conversation. I think it is, but also you said earlier, like, are we as, uh, are the public as well informed? I mean, I, I made a comment, I think it's important Irish Times this morning, I'm not so sure people realise, on the other hand, how much part of the European security and defence negotiations and discussions we have been for the last 20 odd years. We never opted out of that. Yep. Uh, we very much opted in on that. And so PESCO, um, yep. uh, Partnership for Peace, all of that, um, interoperability with other uh, defence forces in terms of standards mm -hmm. and so on like that, so, our, so that our defence forces could operate in different locations on peacekeeping, peace enforcement, or other missions. Um, so there's a, there is a lot we can bring to the table in that respect. I mean, our, our army in Mali and other places, or in Chad, mm. I remember some time back, were very, very effective, and they're very effective operators. Yeah. Uh, they, they need, we need to invest in resources yeah. uh, to enable them to contribute uh, to good causes and, and, mm. and, and, and to good events. Moving on to Brexit because obviously that had greater implications for this island mm -hmm. than any other member state. So uh, how concerned are you about potential developments in relation to the protocol over the next period? And also, how do we try to ensure that British-Irish relations are, if not back to where they were, at least mm. because joint membership was fundamental and that's not available. How do we make that relationship sufficiently cooperative that it works for both islands? I think, first of all, um, the protocol and Brexit has cast a, a cloud over the whole thing or in the sense that to enable us to get on to what I want really is a dynamic post-Brexit British-Irish relationship because Britain, Ireland, two governments must be at the anchor of the peace process, the Good Friday Agreement, and the evolution of that into the future. So the Shared Island Initiative that I, we have developed in government and the Shared Island Unit within my department that has been very effective now over the last two years and has built up a critical mass in terms of dialogue series, in terms of investment. We've consistently said to the British government, and I've said to the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, we want you to be, you can bring an east-west dimension to that, which would reassure unionism. That it's not, you know, a Trojan horse for something or other, which it's not. It's a genuine attempt to say across border we can do a lot of pragmatic things, and we need to work out how we share the island together on climate, on all sorts of issues. Um, so there is potential there for a strong British-Irish dynamic, um, but we do need to resolve the protocol issue. And my own sense is the UK government needs to post the Northern Ireland elections, just make up its mind to get it to a positive frame of mind and get this resolved. It is something that can be resolved. Last autumn, we were almost looking at Christmas as a landing zone for an agreement. I think Maris Sefcovic has done great work. He went to the north, he listened to everybody, mm. came forward with concessions, if we call them that, uh, not as a fait accompli, and said, I'm willing to engage further. There was a lack of engagement at that stage. 
Now I think Liz Truss has come in as from saying there is a better mood music, but not a whole lot of movement on the issues. And I think there's a general sense that after the assembly elections, uh, that really it is make or break then to, 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 for UK government and the EU to, to, to engage. UK government now has might feel it has a kind of a stronger um, empathy from uh, some of the states on the border of Russia now because it has proactively supported militarily and so on. Uh, but I think fundamentally uh, it, it has to come to terms with the protocol now that it signed itself. Um, and uh, what's interesting as well, no one in Northern Ireland that we have come across politically or business-wise have said to us that they want to discontinue access to the single market. Yeah. They all want access to the single market. Uh, the issue is what's the mechanism to facilitate that? And there are signs that the Northern Ireland economy is benefiting from the from the protocol. But of course, it's it's Brexit is highly politicised in, <laughs> in London, and that, that, that yeah, that's the problem. It's, it's just can you let go of this political um, yeah. uh, sort of? Now, the British government will say to us that that's not their agenda. They will equally say to us that they need to get it resolved too because they did commit to getting Brexit done. You know, that, that famous slogan. If it drags on for another year and it's not done, or if you provoke a further row with Europe on it, it's not mm. done. So there is a motivation on the British government side as well to bring this to a conclusion. And um, But it is part of, as you have said, of domestic British politics in the sense of the ERG group who are constantly nipping away one gets the sense that quite a number of the cabinet would like this resolved in a practical way, and that is very possible. Where there's a will, there's a way here. Uh, and I felt David Frost's uh, intervention when Sefcovic had made his announcement, it was preempted by Lord Frost's mm. thing about the ECJ. Mm. Yeah, Northern Ireland political parties were not overly concerned at all about the ECJ's no. role in this. No. Um, and they wanted a pragmatic landing zone for them. Uh, and I, I accept they had concerns. We, legit, yeah. we accept their legitimate concerns, uh, but it was it, it, this can be resolved, and it's important that it does get resolved because I think there's a lot of good work that the British Irish governments can do together. At official level, I think things are uh, much more stable. Uh, I, I think there's good rapport between officials now, uh, Downing Street and and here, and that's all positive. Can, can I end on the conference on the future of Europe? Because obviously with the big plenaries, the European movement was very involved in this. But of course, the future of Europe is probably being determined elsewhere and not in a conference as we, as we speak. But what are your hopes for that process? Can you envisage, for example, a constitutional convention, treaty change? And of course, we all know what that means in, for us. Yeah. Uh, where do you think that conference on the future of Europe? Maybe I'm a bit, a bit naive or a bit, um, not, not, not naive is the wrong word, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm not against treaty change or the idea of having treaty change. You know, some colleagues might be concerned about that. I'm not. I think we should, if it's necessary, we should go for it. I, 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 I think in health, for example. It's necessary. Yeah. Um, baffles me that in public health, mm. there should be a, a strong European competency. That was demonstrated during COVID-19. Um, and um, I've always believed that since my own time as Minister for Health, uh, mm. because we had the SARS, um, which didn't become a pandemic, but it was hairy enough around the meetings. I mean, you'd have a minister come in who had political concerns about local elections almost dictating European health responses, yep. which were not evidence-based at all. Yep. Yep. So we, we need to strengthen the ECDC in capacity terms. The HERA group that's been established 
for example, yes. which has been very effective. I think needs stronger footing as well. So there's a lot we could do there. Now there's other areas as well. That's an area that comes to mind for me because of the experience of COVID and being at the EU Council meeting and pushing, pushing, pushing all the time for a stronger European response, uh, which I thought, I thought was very effective. It was a great uh, uh, strength of the European Union that it responded in the way that it did. And can I finally ask you, what's your hope? I won't say for the next 50 years of Ireland's membership, but the next 10, the decade ahead. Well, I, I think, look, you, you said something earlier, which I don't believe we're still doing enough of, which is sort of making the European Union an everyday part of the conversation, um, particularly in schools and third-level colleges, further education colleges. Um, and, and, uh, we, and I think we have opportunities now to do that because of recent experiences. Um, so, so, so that's one. I think we have to continue to be a very proactive uh, member of, of the European Union, uh, continue to engage. Um, we are a, a people, a globalised country now. Um, we're all over the world. Uh, and I think we should put that to good effect and be positive, energetic, proactive members of the European Union. Thank you, Tishuk. And can I just thank you very much for the richness of your responses. And we didn't actually talk an awful lot about the past, but in a way that's important because it really is the future challenges of the EU that matter to all of us, fit for 55 and all of that. And that remains the existential crisis uh, facing the world. Can I also say that I wore the red in your honour but it doesn't mean that I won't support the green and gold next weekend. <laughs> Classic Kerry, you know. <laughs> we'll listen to a voice. We'll do our best next weekend. We're playing a star-studded Kerry team who, as, as Mick DeWire would say at one time, you know, it's the best team in Ireland we're playing, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very, very much for your time thank you very this much. evening thank you. and for your generosity and for your commitment to Ireland's membership of the EU, which has been unstinting for a very, very long time. Thank you, Tishuk. Thank you.